0: The Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. Pie Jesu Domine, Dona eis requiem. This is a Popular Podcast. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope-colored glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode Ott.17, On Trees. All of these odd episodes are designed to help us build our Pope-colored glasses so we look at history together. A couple quick words of warning before we begin. Uh, First off, I'm pretty sure I'm sounding pretty gunky, but I'm going to try and do this all in one session, so at least I'm consistently gunky for this episode. I can't really put it off more, because, well, then I'll be out of time. Second note, I'm pretty sure I have a general warning that all my podcast episodes, frankly, discuss historical events, and so should be considered PG-rated rather than G, Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and elevate that warning for this episode to PG-13. Don't get too excited. This isn't going to be... Judges 2.0, and it's kind of a narrow call sort of thing, but there were enough points when I was putting this together that I debated whether an extra warning was appropriate that I'm just, i just going to put this up front and then let the rest of it flow. If you're annoyed I made this Christmas episode a little bit grittier, Uh, have no fear, because while this is coming out on the Feast of the Nativity, this isn't actually my Christmas episode. With my rather brilliant planning, if I may say, My real Christmas episode was actually the last main episode, 0.16, and it was very Christmassy and about as family-friendly as history gets. Uh, For what it's worth, my episodes on the Ascension and Pentecost are projected to line up nicely with the actual solemnities next year. Anyways, uh, to give you an idea of what you're in for this go round this episode includes, among other things, discussions of execution, kidnapping, and the holy foreskin. Yes, we're going all over the place today, with one common theme to keep it tied together. Trees. In this episode, as the title suggests, we will indeed be talking about trees, which modern science traces back several hundred million years to the Carboniferous period, so named because of the coal it brought us. Carbo, being Latin for coal, which gives us, well, carbon in English, and Pharaoh being Latin for carrying, or bringing, like the English word ferry. So, the era that gave us trees is named after the trees themselves. Okay, along with other assorted plants, which turn coal into other fossil fuels. Discussions about the carbon cycle and its implications we can save for another day, especially given that this podcast doesn't tend to go by modern science. Our Pope-colored glasses tend to favor the traditional view that trees were created in the Garden of Eden on the third day of creation. You know, the day before God created the sun. So there's none of that uh, carboniferous business, please. Now, before all the climate change enthusiasts in my audience get all hot and bothered about me generally dismissing science on this show, I should note that there is a strong tradition of the Vatican pursuing fairly environmentally friendly policies, including a project that would have earned Vatican City State a place of honor as the first carbon-neutral country in history. Or at least the first carbon-neutral country since, you know, folks started caring about such things. I mean, I'm pretty sure it wasn't too hard to be carbon-neutral in the years before burning fossil fuels was a regular occurrence. Uh, But then again, I suppose deforestation generally isn't a carbon-neutral approach to things. Anyways, you probably noticed I said it was a project that would have made the Vatican carbon neutral, implying that it didn't, mainly because, well, it uh, didn't. It turned out to basically be a con, and the Vatican climate forest, announced with such pomp in 2007, never materialized. Not a one of the proposed trees was ever planted, and it seems. The guy in charge, well, I won't go into detail because he seems like the lawsuit-happy type. Anyways, a Pope Benedict pivoted to having the Vatican go solar on the roof of the Paul VI audience hall. It wasn't enough to reach that uh, coveted carbon-neutral country milestone, but it was a lot more effective than planting zero trees in Hungary. Okay, so... Enough about the widely theorized trees of the Carboniferous and the non-existent trees of the Vatican climate forest. How about some trees that definitely existed? Oh? No? Wait, not yet? Y- you want some more peripherally existent trees? Okay, well how about we revisit those origins of the Christmas tree and talk about how, though there's a Victorian-era rumor about those conifers coming via St. Boniface, There is no evidence of that from within a thousand years of the lifetime of St. Boniface, so I'm calling shenanigans. That didn't happen. Sound good? Okay, I'll put a link in the show notes if you don't believe me or want to dig deeper on that. Again, St. Boniface, Christmas trees. No, not related. One Christmas tradition I didn't go over last episode is the Jesse tree, named after Jesse, the father of King David which is designed to emphasize Jesus' genealogy and the ties between the 1st and 2nd Testaments. And, granted, the transition between Judaism and Christianity is a lot messier than a simple jesse tree may lead one to believe. Let's paint a scene. Bologna, June 23, 1858. Night has just fallen on the Mortara family when there's a knock at the door. It's the Carabinieri, the military police acting under orders of the local inquisition. The parents are informed that their six-year-old son is to be taken from them, and raised as a Christian, as he has been secretly baptized. The next day, young Edgardo Levi Mortara was officially taken from his parents to be raised by the Pope himself. No, this isn't fiction, this is a thing that actually happened, and in modern enough times that the news broke through telegraph wires across the world. The Papal States were winding down at this point, and yes, there's going to be lots more on those later if you're already lost. Think about them as the predecessor to modern Vatican City, but they were across much of Italy. Anyways, the Papal States were winding down, and this scandal was used as fuel to attack Papal governance. And, frankly, rightly so. Now, (sighs) Pope Pius had his reasons. Um, Sometimes people like to pretend in situations like this, that it was all, you know, purely cynical, and there's no possible, you know, faith-based motivation. But honestly, in the end, I think Pius thought he was doing the right thing here. He wasn't, but he thought he was. So let's go ahead and put on our Pope-colored glasses and look at those reasons. And we're going to get uncomfortable, because while plenty has changed in the last 150 years, the underlying logic used here could still apply as the Catholic Church still accepts the validity of baptisms performed even against the wishes of the parents when a child is in danger of death. We'll cover this in more detail in a couple of episodes, but fundamentally, the point of baptizing an infant when they're in danger of death is so that they can go to heaven rather than being damned by that pesky original sin we talked about all the way back in episode one, In the Mortara case, young Edgardo had been gravely ill when the family maid had secretly baptized him, for the good of his soul in her view, and ultimately also in the view of Pope Pius. Remember, we've still got those Pope-colored glasses on. Now, the maid didn't tell the parents about it, but she did eventually tell the friendly neighborhood inquisitors, since, yeah, that was part of life in the papal states. The inquisitors followed church law, They were most likely operating at a level below Pius' direct command initially, although he certainly was very much involved in the end when he decided to personally raise the boy himself. The logic behind taking a child from his very much alive and capable biological parents was that they were, in essence, actually not capable after all, since Edgardo was a Christian now. And Jews couldn't be expected to raise Christians, now could they? It's... The best thing for him, guys. Best thing for everyone. Though Pius's personal adoption of Edgardo stands out, the overall case was not that abnormal. In the 19th century, child mortality was quite high, and very many Jewish households employed Christian maids. The possibility of such a baptism by one of the Christian maids for one of the Jewish children was apparently real enough that many such maids were asked to sign a document upon leaving service indicating that they did not baptize any member of the family during their tenure. By the time the papal states finished collapsing, and it was then possible for Edgardo to return to his family, the 19-year-old had no desire to do so. Edgardo was ordained a priest two years later, also receiving a trust fund from Pope Pius, who considered him his son a relationship by which all accounts Edgardo, by this time, accepted. He considered his parents good, but uh, likely damned as Jews, and they never reconciled. (sighs) There is supposedly a movie or two in the works about this, including a Spielberg version that seems like it will never be, though IMDb has dutifully moved its release year from 2017 back now to uh, 2026. There's also another film based on this by another director that's allegedly supposed to release in this year, in 2022, though there's not much time left for that. If and when such a film does come out, I'll check it out and I'll get you all a review. Perhaps a movie coming out would generate enough commentary that we'd get to hear what the modern papacy has to hear about this, uh, well, let's call it what it is, papal kidnapping. In the end, it obviously wasn't enough of a blot on Pius IX's legacy to prevent his beatification, which occurred on September 3rd, 2000. And since Pius has been beatified, I am bound as a Catholic to accept that he made it into heaven. I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, despite this." And for what it's worth, I do like that thought. Ultimately, I like the thought of everyone making it into heaven, including Mamalo and Mariana Mortara, the parents who got to suffer the absurd purgatory on earth of having their child abducted by the Pope himself. Obviously, I'm not in charge of canonizations, and that's probably for the best. I probably shouldn't be hoping for a Christian heaven for these Jewish parents anyways, but you know what I mean. Heaven is where you're going to be happy, and I hope them to be happy. And yes, uh, one day I won't have to say this sort of thing nearly as often as we go through these world-building episodes, but uh, more on beatifications and on canonizations and on the difference in a future world-building episode. For now, let's get back to the Jesse tree, shall we? Especially the uh, biblical root from the stem of Jesse. Oh, what's the, uh, what's the stem of Jesse? Why, that's the house of David, of course. You know of episode eight point five, the house of David fame. Future Greg, that was episode eight point four. Why is it Jesse and not David then? Because Jesse was David's father. And so, when Isaiah talks about a shoot from the house of Jesse, it's referring to the house of David, right down to uh, Jesus. It just so happens, according to the genealogy that helps get the ball very slowly rolling in the Gospel of Matthew. A genealogy which I very sneakily included in that recent supplemental, as one of the Bible passages we've covered so far, even though technically we haven't actually done that part yet. It just made everything fit better that way. And really, it's Not like it's a huge reveal that Jesus is of royal blood, is it? I mean, I suppose, in a way, it was a big reveal for zombie Herod. That's kind of why he freaked out. But zombie Herod freaking out is no big deal, as Jesus has plot armor right down to Joseph getting a specific divine warning to flee to Egypt so that baby Jesus survives to save not only the Jews but everyone, right? Remember the story from last episode? Anyhow, Yes, we are continuing our rosary-guided tour of the Second Testament, and so today's episode is themed around the fourth joyful mystery, the presentation, which, being centered on a Jewish ritual, gives us a good opportunity to not only reflect on the journey we've gone through so far as we made our way through the First Testament, but also to look forward to the relationship between Christianity and Judaism after what I believe is technically called the whole Jesus thing. As you may have noticed from the uh, papal kidnapping story, it's not a particularly smooth ride. And I suppose this is as good an opportunity as any for me to remind you that yes, I'm going to be continuing to use the terms First and Second Testament rather than Old and New Testament today as a small way of pushing back on resurgent anti-Semitism. It's not so much out with the Old in with the New here, or the new fulfills the old, which is hidden in the new. That's a statement which sums up the traditional view of the relationship between Testaments. But really, I'm going more for, it's important to consider the likely consequences of my words and actions in the light of history. Because, boy oh boy, do we have plenty of history of Jewish-Christian relations to draw from. Now, this episode is one that has a higher likelihood of later revision than usual. I've done a decent amount of prep work, including listening to not one but two relevant podcasts that I'm happy to recommend to you, namely The Jewish Story by Rav Mike Foyer, which is honestly fairly forgiving towards Christians, and The Jewish History Podcast by Rabbi Yaakov Wolby, which is uh, less so. Both those are linked in the show notes, by the way. So anyways, I'm not going in cold here, but at the end of the day, if someone disagrees with something I say in this episode, well chances are pretty good they're in the right. But as with the Rome series, and frankly as with everything else so far, I'm just going to give it my best, and I'm going to plan to go back and fix this if I mess up substantially. Do you remember Josephus' discussions of the Hasmoneans? How he described the uh, groups the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes? how the Pharisees believed in an oral Torah given to Moses at Sinai along with the written Torah, and how the Sadducees rejected that concept, and how the Essenes basically got disgusted with both the Pharisees and the Sadducees and noped off to go do their own thing in the desert? Well, you'll note that those divisions do not exist in modern Judaism. For what it's worth, they uh, don't exist in modern Christianity either. In the end, from what we can tell, Modern rabbinic Judaism appears to descend from those Pharisees, Josephus describes, and hence includes the concept of the oral Torah given to Moses alongside the written Torah at Sinai. I want to stress that point, because it's been a major point of confusion for Christians trying to understand Judaism for, well, basically the last 2,000 years. The written Torah, even the expanded canon, you know, the kind of the, the whole First Testament, these writings are not the entirety of the law from the viewpoint of rabbinic Judaism. Very often, even well-meaning Christians misunderstand this, assuming the First Testament contains all the sacred texts of Judaism. No, there's also the Mishnah, that's the first effort to jot down the oral Torah after the destruction of the Temple, and the Gemara, which is basically a written commentary on the Mishnah. Together, these form the Talmud, especially the Babylonian Talmud, though there's also the earlier Jerusalem Talmud. Now, these world-building episodes you're listening to are an overview of Catholicism, not of Judaism, so I'm not going to go deeper than that rough sketch, but that's helpful context for why medieval Christians kept getting thrown off by surprise holy texts and layers of mysticism that they hadn't realized were there when they tried to convince the Jews of their day that Jesus was the Messiah. Of course, We are applying our patented Pope-colored glasses here. And those glasses point us to the basic idea that of course the Jews had to make up something to justify not accepting Jesus as the obvious Messiah. So up popped the oral Torah. How convenient. No, no, guys, I'm not an anti-Semite, I swear. It's these darn Pope-colored glasses we're wearing. Alright, look. I'm doing my best to keep the comfortable joking tone as the default. But in the end... There is a long, dark history in the relationship between Judaism and the Catholic Church, and Christianity in general, and it's not a history that's over, either. In literally the last 24 hours, I came across anti-Semitic fear-mongering in response to the latest inside baseball drama within Catholicism. Things have gotten a lot better in the last 50 years, but there's a reason I keep going back to this First and Second Testament naming the beast of catholic anti-semitism still lives and it should be denied all sustenance as for how it all started well in a nutshell it's true that christianity began within judaism mary was an observant jew jesus was an observant jew a descendant of jesse of the house of david no less through his foster father joseph who was, you guessed it, an observant Jew. And yet, as you'll see, the way of Jesus certainly brought changes that separated his followers from their Jewish contemporaries. An apparently cavalier approach to the law of Moses, for example, not to mention an eventual openness to all people, not just the members of the twelve tribes of Israel. After Jesus things really kicked into high gear with the self-proclaimed apostle to the Gentiles, Paul pushing back on early Christian leaders such as James, and it seems to a lesser extent Peter, who wanted to keep at least Jews who followed Jesus following the law, something we touched on in episode 1 as pertains to Peter, not to mention the supplemental on the incident at Antioch and the Council of Jerusalem, both of which were centered, in essence, on the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. Indeed, even the modern scholars, skeptical of so much, tend to agree that there was a form of Jewish Christianity for the first several decades of Christian development, communities which observed both the law and uh, Jesus' reforms, that Jewish Christianity took increasing lumps as Jewish revolts against Roman dominance sprung up and were violently suppressed, Not only with the famous destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but with an even more thorough crushing and displacement after the gigantic Bar Kokhba revolt racked Judea from 132 to 136. Roman persecution of the Jews ended up being pretty severe, but by pretty much all accounts, the Christian persecutions of the Jews managed to be worse. How did that come about? Well, the earthly fate of Jesus certainly played a role, if you'll forgive me calling it that to keep up some pretense of avoiding spoilers for folks who somehow don't know how the Gospels turn out. Suffice to say, there's a part in the Gospel of Matthew where, well, quote, "...and all of the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children." End quote. That's Matthew. Chapter 27, verse 25, for those willing to brave spoilers. Suffice to say, there's a specific blood curse interpretation of that verse and the surrounding events that has given anti-Semites in and around Catholicism cover for millennia. Going back to the, you know, for what it's worth category, the Council of Trent put the blame for Jesus' death on sinners generally, not on Jews especially. And, in addition, the Second Vatican Council specifically rejected the gross notion of collective multi-generational guilt for deicide to be borne by the Jewish people as a whole. But in the end, things got, well, bad. And there's no excusing it. Nor is there any excuse for covering for it, or for refusing to apologize for it. There is a certain subset of Christians, and it seems especially of Catholics, who say they are tired of apologizing for the wrongs the Church has done through the years. To which I say, tough cookies. We did plenty of wrong, and if we end up apologizing for the Inquisition and all else until kingdom come, so be it. Apologies heal rather than hurt, and they remain due as the Church should have done better. I'm not going to go deep into talking about the Inquisition today, apart from noting that technically it had no jurisdiction over Jews or any other non-Christians, though those lines were blurred and many Jews who had been forced to accept baptism under torture and or pain of death ultimately were burned or otherwise executed for their continued preference for Jewish customs. That was bad and wrong. But I'm not going to dwell on that topic because that will be a sufficiently meaty topic for its own series one day, most likely, in the post world building era, if we ever actually get there. Believe it or not, though, the Inquisition was actually more of an early modern thing rather than a medieval thing. In the Middle Ages themselves, except towards the end, the attitude was generally not so much convert or die as it was can't sit with us. You see, the general medieval Christian view was not that Jews were good. After all, they had rejected the Messiah when he came to them, despite all the prep work God had put into them as the chosen people. It's these Pope-colored glasses again, guys, not me personally, I swear. Anyways, it was nevertheless seen as an important thing to keep the Jews around, and more or less under the boot, to show how God doesn't favor you if you don't follow Jesus them as a cautionary tale, if you will. Ew, yes, but in general it did allow the Jews of Christian Europe enough leeway to carry on, and in some cases even to famously prosper, given that the early medieval church was pretty serious about not allowing folks to charge any interest on loans, as that would be the sin of usury. That understanding has since had a dramatic shift, and I know a few Christians who would think twice about seeing interest rates as part of regular life, but that's another story for another day. For today, it's useful to know that the church had no jurisdiction over unbaptized Jews, and so the ecclesiastical prohibition on usury was not binding on Jewish merchants, who were therefore able to be a lot more successful than folks who did have to navigate with a fairly obvious financial handicap. In the end, this situation did help enrich some Jews, but it also helped solidify stereotypes about Jews as greedy bankers controlling things behind the scenes, uh, not to mention antagonize the whole relationship. (sighs) Now, considering Jews tended to either wind up in ghettos or completely expelled by the end of the Middle Ages, uh, not to mention being targets of various pogroms through their long history, well... (sighs) The shadowy Jewish conspiracy myth is a persistent old myth that even survives into our old times, but it is fundamentally a myth. It's certainly one known to vomit up poisonous fruits such as the Shoah, or the Holocaust if you prefer, though uh, Pope John Paul II, the pope who most directly addressed the topic, did prefer that Hebrew term, uh, Shoah. Of course, it's all well and good to have Pope John Paul II mourning things in retrospect, but what about the Pope at the helm at the time of the Second World War, the Pope who actually was instrumental in setting up the original diplomatic ties between the Holy See and Nazi Germany? What about Pope Pius XII, who some call a saint and who others dismiss as Hitler's Pope? Well, I'm uh, definitely going to be saving that one for some future content. For now, remember like how I started talking about trees, like I was pretty absurdly literal with the tree takes, and then we got analogous for a while, but a whole lot darker? Well, let's get back to literal trees, but keep just a tinge of that darkness. Let's talk about Jesus's surprisingly strong stand against fig trees. Especially that time when the creator of the universe was all like, oh yeah, F this one fig tree in particular. In both the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Jesus curses an actual fig tree that does not bear fruit. And in the Gospel of Luke, there's a parable he tells about a barren fig tree. In all three cases, there is context that seems to support an interpretation of these instances as being an analogy for how, in the view of the Gospel authors, the Jewish people have effectively squandered their status as the chosen people by not ultimately bearing fruit. Now, what is this context, you ask? Well, the story of Jesus flipping out on the money changers in the temple. If you're not familiar with this, check it out along with the other assigned readings in the show notes for this episode. And the assigned readings are all over the place. I just had fun grabbing anything that had anything to do with trees. Why not? The specific sections for the cursing of the fig tree are Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25, and Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 to 22. With Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, featuring the following not particularly subtle parable A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, so he came looking for fruit on it, and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down, why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, Let it alone for one more year, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. End quote. You see, it's it's not actually about figs, guys. The figs represent people, and the fruit is doing things. Time is tight, and we'll have problems if we don't. But especially in those Gospels where this isn't given as a parable, but rather it's Jesus, like, actually cursing physically a fig tree, this is an unexpected and kind of surprising episode. Quote, Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree up by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. End quote. That's the Matthew version. But, you know what, let's not get too hung up on Christ's oddly well-documented anger against this one fig tree in particular, be it parable or not, because our rosary mystery for today is the presentation of the child Jesus in the temple, which means we can briefly introduce the holy prepuce. Remember how I described the holy family as a bunch of observant Jews? Well part of that would have involved the child jesus being circumcised as described in luke chapter 2 verse 21 which is significant because that would indicate a certain small piece of christ's body was separated from the rest for reasons we'll get into in future episodes bodily relics have a special significance in catholicism but christ's body is mostly not available for relic hunters to uh how shall I say this, uh, create optimistic provenance for, so they had to get extra creative to meet pious demand, often focusing on second-class relics like Pieces of the True Cross or uh, the Shroud of Turin. More on those later. Or there's also things like the Holy Prepuce, which gave rise to the cult of the Holy Foreskin. Prepuce coming from the Latin for foreskin. Pro tip there. Now, despite it being a big enough deal that Charlemagne apparently gave the prepuce to Pope Leo III at the time of his imperial coronation on Christmas Day of the year 800—by the way, happy 1,222nd imperial anniversary, Mr. Um, Charlemagne—anyways, despite that level of prominence in the medieval church, the holy foreskin isn't as well known today as things like the shroud or the true cross as the church is basically tired of all the giggling over it through the centuries, not to mention the fact that all the theorized copies are lost. By some accounts, the anti-giggling campaign went so far as to ban all discussion of the relic, but I was unable to find an actual document to that effect, and frankly, I doubt that particular piece of the story about this piece of, well, Christ's peace. Okay. I'm actually going to spare you guys the account of an encounter with the holy foreskin by medieval mystic Agnes Blanbecken, in part because I don't want to give this episode more of a content warning than I already have, and in part because I'm a little skeevy about it since our source is apparently her confessor. And that just feels, eh, to me, getting hot costs from a confessor. So, let's move on. After a single scant verse on Jesus' circumcision the Gospel of Luke jumps ahead to the key event as far as our mystery du jour is concerned, the presentation of the child Jesus in the temple. Like the circumcision itself, this was part of Jesus' initiation to his faith as a young Jewish boy, with Mary and Joseph following the law as laid out in Leviticus chapter 12. Perhaps notably, they opt for the provision established for poorer families on this occasion, They were sacrificing either two turtle doves yes, that's probably where that lyric comes from in the twelve days of Christmas or two pigeons rather than a full-on lamb. Either the wise men hadn't arrived yet or that gift of gold didn't stretch as far as one might think or perhaps some more pious commentary does suggest that the gold was either humbly refused or perhaps soon donated. In any event, Though a descendant of David, Joseph apparently wasn't loaded. Though traditionally, he was a carpenter, though the Greek is more generic, calling him a tecton, basically a skilled laborer, which would have probably let him be in a relatively comfortable middle-class status, though apparently not like, you know, taking the lamb option for the sacrifice comfortable, you know? Anyhow, this trip to the temple commemorated on February 2nd, which is 40 days after the birth of Jesus in accordance with the law, it was not just about Jesus. Indeed, an older name for the Feast of the Presentation is the Feast of the Purification of the Virgin, i.e. Mary. But uh, why did Mary need purified? Well, because the law said so, ultimately catholic commentators and again we are mindful of the pope color glasses here aren't we um catholic commentators are careful to avoid the suggestion that mary sinned by giving birth which fair enough i think even non-catholics would tend to agree that giving birth isn't a sin but in the end like menstruation giving birth does result in ritual impurity in mosaic law which mindful of our four marian dogmas will avoid confusing that ritual impurity with sinfulness, because Catholic teaching holds that Mary never sinned. Now, technically, the thing that Pius IX was so intent on was confirming that Mary was preserved from original sin, specifically, and as Adam and Eve can attest, not having original sin doesn't necessarily guarantee protection from all sin, but then again, I haven't come across any Catholic theologian suggesting Mary sinned at any point. Uh, Maybe you can be the first if you put your mind to it, though I have a feeling that that will end with the Pope sighing and then excommunicating you. But hey, if you want to be the impetus behind a fifth Marian dogma, go ahead, sure. Okay, so, no sin for Mary. What were the other three again, the other Marian dogmas? we might as well give a full recap, as we'll be comparatively light on Mary for the rest of Jesus' life, and as we've already had stressed, Mary is pretty important within Catholicism. So here's the four Marian dogmas revisited. In the order of their historical definition, we have number one, perpetual virginity, i.e. Mary was a lifelong virgin, not just a virgin until her marriage to Joseph. As you might recall, the apocryphal but ancient and frankly fun Proto-Evangelium of James was super keen on this idea. In terms of mainstream Christianity, we do have Hippolytus of Rome calling Mary ever virgin way back in the early 3rd century, but uh, we might take Hippolytus as a starting point with a grain of salt considering he was also the first anti-pope in history. Then again, he's also a saint. Look, guys, papal history is crazy, and more on all that craziness down the road to be sure. Anyways, by 390, perpetual virginity was well-established as St. Ambrose tussled with the heretic Jovinian, and it was further solidified by the Council of Ephesus in 431, going generally unchallenged in the West until the days of Luther and Calvin. And psych, gotcha, because both Luther and Calvin actually accepted the notion of Mary's perpetual virginity, though it wasn't too long before things shifted, and nowadays most Protestants do reject this teaching. I mentioned Ephesus in 431 a minute ago, and that marks the canonization of the second Marian dogma as well. Number two, Mother of God. As I review my notes, it looks like back in episode 0.14, when we last went over these, I see I said I'd cover Mother of God, quote, extensively, end quote, in 0.16, which would have been last episode. And all I can say is, uh, my bad, because that, that didn't happen. Really, I'm not even going to cover the Mother of God thing extensively now, because Ephesus and the other ecumenical councils deserve their own treatment. I do plan to circle back to them in future world-building episodes OTT.24 and OTT.29, but of course, if I were you, I'd take that with several grains of salt, seeing as to how I'm literally apologizing for not following through on a promise to cover something in a future episode right now. Anyways, the brief version is that Catholic teaching defined at Ephesus in 431, holds that Mary is rightly called the mother of God. She is not just the mother of Christ as man or some sort of donor of his human flesh. She is properly called Christ's mother, even as Christ is properly called God. The Greek word for the underlying concept, which you don't have to know, but which I really should make sure you at least hear in the context of this discussion, is theotokos, often approximated as God-bearer in English. Now, the third Marian dogma, in order of definition, is the Immaculate Conception, which I did actually go into detail on already in episode eight point one four, Something About Mary, and which is the one we were just treading carefully around as we were discussing Mary's ritually impure state that brought her to the temple 40 days after birth. Remember, folks, we're looking at things through Pope-colored glasses, Mary never sinned. So, rounding things off, the fourth Marian dogma, by date of definition, is her Assumption into Heaven, defined by Pope Pius XII in 1950 in the Apostolic Constitution, munificentissimus Deus. Now, don't get too hung up on the phrase Apostolic Constitution, as there's actually a lot more than one of those. Hence, the Latin serving as a distinguishing name. Now, if you're curious... Munificantissimus Deus can be translated as the most bountiful God. Following tradition for such documents, it's the first few words of it that give it its name, which was the best way to do it back in the days before you had title pages, and which I think still has a certain charm to it. Anyways, I'm just going to long quote Pius XII here. Quote, After we have poured forth prayers of supplication again and again to God, And have invoked the light of the Spirit of Truth, for the glory of Almighty God, who has lavished his special affection upon the Virgin Mary, for the honor of her Son, the immortal King of the ages, and the victor over sin and death, for the increase of the glory of that same august Mother, and for the joy and the exaltation of the entire Church, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the blessed Apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own authority. We pronounce declare and define it to be a divinely revealed dogma that the immaculate mother of god the ever virgin mary having completed the course of her earthly life was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory hence if any one which god forbid should dare willfully to deny or call into doubt that which we have defined let him know that he has fallen away completely from the divine and Catholic faith." End quote. For what it's worth, this too will be covered in more detail in a future episode, considering long before Pius Twelfth, the Assumption was already the fourth glorious mystery of the Most Holy Rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, okay, just so you guys know, we're almost 6,000 words into this episode built around the presentation and we've covered exactly four of the 19 verses of the Gospel of Luke dedicated to the event. That's probably because I spent a lot of time earlier talking about trees and Jews and roots, and we're going to have some more payoff from that as we go, since the rest of the description of the presentation definitely hits those themes as well. You see, in the temple at the same time, and apparently for a long time waiting for this moment through their long lives, there were two elderly Jews... Simeon and Anna. Let's tackle them one at a time. Luke introduces Simeon as follows Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. End quote. Then after that introduction, Simeon gets a song, and you know this is a hit song, because once again we have a daily banger for the Liturgy of the Hours, similar to the Canticle of Zechariah from Morning Prayer and the Song of Mary from Evening Prayer. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce, again from the first couple chapters of Luke, the Canticle of Simeon, intoned daily during night prayer. To quote my English translation, Lord, now you let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. My own eyes have seen the salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of every people. A light to reveal you to the nations, and the glory of your people, Israel. And then we have a further section. Quote, The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, too. That passage is where traditionally we get the idea that Mary basically knew what was up um, with the plan of salvation when she said yes to the angel Gabriel. Now, Anna doesn't have a liturgy of the hours-level banger, but her story is similar. Quote, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was eighty-four. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God, and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. End quote. Now, keeping in mind that the Feast of the Presentation, also sometimes called a Candlemas for some reason, is celebrated on February 2nd, because again, that's 40 days from Christmas, and the presentation would have happened 40 days after Christ's birth, it's pretty cute that Simeon and Anna share a feast day on the following day, February 3rd. Either oddly or conveniently, the very next day, February the 4th, happens to be the earliest possible day for Ash Wednesday, but we've got an awful lot to cover before we get to that side of things, because that start of Lent points the liturgical way to the end of Jesus' life, away from his family tree and towards the tree on a Golgotha hill. But we're not going to start there yet. For now, We're just getting started. Tune in next week, folks, for episode 0.18, The Model Family. And no, I'm not changing the release schedule. It just so happens that I can say tune in next week because the next solemnity happens to be a week from today. It's January 1st, the solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. So indeed, I'll see you next week. Though it'll actually be less than a week before the next solemnity after that, so my production schedule is jam-packed due to the liturgical season. But then after January 6th, things will quiet down again until March. So I'll have a much-needed break for myself and my family during late January and uh, February, which is good, because we are on track to welcome baby Gabe to the outside world in February. On that note, my thanks to all my family, but especially to Mrs. Popular History and my kids for their patience as I continue the hours of research, prep, recording, editing, and yes, even promoting that goes into this podcast. Do me a favor and do a little bit of that promoting work yourselves as well, if you would, so I can get more encouraging feedback at popularhistory@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's popular with an E. Get it? It's a Pope pun. Email plug, Check. You didn't you didn't think I'd forget that, did you? God bless you all.